We Saved You a Seat is sponsored by the Oklahoma Family Network. Oklahoma Family Network focuses on supporting families of children and youth with special health care needs and disabilities, as well as families who have children with a mental health or behavioral health diagnosis. Oklahoma Family Network provides families with emotional support, resource navigation, parent-to-parent engagement opportunities, and wants to ensure quality health care for all children and families by building strong and effective family professional partnerships. Hello, everyone. I am Tamara Crabtree with Oklahoma Family Network. And today I have our guest, Farrah Mayberry. Uh, She is a woman of so many talents and accomplishments and achievements. And uh, we actually have a mutual friend, I guess, who actually introduced us a couple of years ago, and I guess that she introduced us via text and email, so we didn't really get to meet each other. And then there was an event at Christmas around the holidays of 2019 where we actually got to meet face-to-face for the first time. Um, and I know our conversation started about talking about your new nonprofit that you were doing and uh, some very cool things that you have started taking on and things you've done in the past. Um, but before we jump into all of that, I definitely want um, you to tell us more about yourself and your family and maybe some things that you do for fun. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Tamara. Um, It's always great talking with you. Uh, Thanks for having me here today. Uh, So yes, I am, my name is Farah Antoine Mayberry, and I am uh, a mom of five kids. I'm married to an awesome husband. We have five energetic and amazing children. Um, I, as a professional, I'm an, I'm an occupational therapist and have been since 2003. I graduated on the East Coast uh, at Howard University and uh, moved to Oklahoma about 16 years ago and have worked uh, as an occupational therapist in different settings uh, at Baptist, at, at, at Mercy, at um, Children's Hospital, OU, and uh, worked in the NICU with babies. Um, pediatrics uh, definitely is a huge passion of mine and uh, made my way when we had our fifth child I um, wanted to stay home with him for as long as I can afford to so I got to spend a lot more time with him and at some point um, being home um, the opportunity to work uh, facilitating a breastfeeding support group uh, was offered to me. So I did that and got the opportunity to train to become a lactation counselor. So I did that. And again, being around moms and babies uh, made me want to be around moms and babies even more. So I trained <laughs> to become a doula and uh, so that I can help couples prepare for pregnancy, assist them uh, during labor and also uh, assist them and help them during their postpartum phase. Uh, continued working with moms and babies, trained to become a midwife's assistant, and uh, and then furthered my lactation um, status. So I'm a new lactation consultant. So just around moms and babies a whole lot. Uh, And that, uh, and in terms of free time, things I like to do, I like hanging out with my family. I love watching movies. I love snuggling on the couch with, you know, uh, with, there's always somebody to snuggle with, with five kids. Uh, and just spending that quality time together. Um, I also like the downtime that I get to have for myself where I can just refresh uh, and think and brainstorm and just be grateful for the universe that I'm in. And so that's me. I I was going to say your your spare time does not have a lot of spare in it, does it? (laughs) 
It's a busy, definitely busy season. Busy oh season, yeah. Well, and, and kind of talking about your spare time, you at some point decided you had more spare time than you wanted <laughs> and you jumped into the world of nonprofit. Is that right? Yeah, that so, is right. I was going to say, so tell us a little bit about your nonprofit, maybe why you started it. Was there an event in your life that said, okay, this is, this is what we're going to do. I just, yeah. I can't remember that. So really, because, uh, because I started off uh, as I ventured away from working uh, for another organization uh, as an OT and working on my own as an OT and as a lactation professional, um, some of the statistics that I was exposed to had to do with infant mortality and maternal mortality. So infant mortality is the passing of a child before they reach their first birthday. And maternal mortality has to do with the death of a woman because of pregnancy uh, or birth-related um, circumstances. And here in this country, in the United States, um, for a developed country, we have high rates of both. We have high rates of infant and uh, maternal mortality. Uh, but even more than that, we have very high rates of infant and maternal mortality within the Black community. So as a Black woman, um, that definitely hit me. And I will say admittedly that when I was exposed to those types of statistics, um, it scared me, uh, it saddened me, and I didn't jump right in to want to do something about it. I actually put it on the shelf and uh, I'm a praying woman. And I just prayed and I just said, you know, if this is something that you want me to pursue, I'm sure you will make it clear. Uh, and that's exactly what happened. Um, I felt like I was prepared in lots of different ways um, to, to create what is now for the village, uh, which is the name of our nonprofit. So, um, so after years of brainstorming and uh, speaking with different individuals and getting counsel and praying, um, we are a nonprofit called For the Village uh, Incorporated, and our goal is to help to enhance infant and maternal health outcomes in the population that experiences the highest rates of infant and maternal mortality. So, of course, uh, that is the Black community. Um, we have a formula that we're using to, uh, to, to reach our goals. And our formula essentially is to create birth workers um, and uh, partner them with Black families and uh, compensate the birth workers for their services and just hit repeat and continue doing that. Uh, when I say birth workers, I mean that those individuals that are chosen to be part of our birth worker cohort, uh, they will be trained by us to become lactation professionals, childbirth educators, as well as doulas. Uh, we're choosing those interventions because we know that those interventions help to increase um, or enhance birth outcomes and uh, maternal health outcomes. So we want to implement uh, different strategies that research has shown uh, will help um, for a population that again, statistically is um, experiencing the worst infant and maternal health outcomes. So we're really, really excited, uh, really excited about that. Wow, so you're actually creating and helping create more um, maybe professionals in the field that are going to yeah. serve maybe an underserved population or, or where there is uh, the highest infant mortality. So, yes, yeah. that is right. So one good sort of uh, 
maybe example of that is um, when we're talking about lactation professionals, essentially there are three different tiers. Um, you have, you can train to become uh, like a lactation um, peer support person, like at La Leche League or um, Baby Cafe, things like that, where you can facilitate a breastfeeding group, um, but your scope of practice is limited. You're kind of counseling, but not uh, your, your, your scope of practice, again, for lack of better terms, is pretty limited. And then the next tier uh, would be training to become a breastfeeding specialist, like a lactation counselor or breastfeeding educator, uh, where again, you, you, do some, you uh, participate in some education hours and you take a test and then you pass and you're certified. Um, the highest tier in uh, lactation in the lactation world uh, internationally is an IBCLC or an internationally board certified lactation consultant. And that individual has to spend years of uh, just training. You have to have a thousand hours of clinical hours, uh, between 500 to a thousand hours. You've got to do the schooling, all of that. So here in Oklahoma, um, so that the lactation consultant or the IBCLC status is one that I've just recently um, um, obtained. So I became an IBCLC in December. Thank you. In Oklahoma, we have four Black IBCLCs. Now, I know of two of them, and I am, I am saying four with me being the fourth because I have to imagine that there's at least one more. So as far as I know, I know there are three of us that are Black IBCLCs. Um, we certainly have more than three Black women who are giving birth and breastfeeding. And the reason that that's even significant to, to, to say and to address is that we know that Black women, for lots of important reasons and lots of historical reasons, don't breastfeed as much as other races do. And we also know that breastfeeding helps to reduce rates of infant mortality. So we have good reason to want to encourage the community to breastfeed. But when, if I didn't do it, if, if my, or if my, if my mother didn't breastfeed, my sisters didn't breastfeed, and my friends and my cousins didn't breastfeed, and the lactation professional comes in the room and already doesn't look like me, uh, I really am less likely to actually buy into this. If the IBCLC walking into the room looks like me, it might get my attention some. And, and this is not just personal opinion, research actually shows that. So with For the Village, um, the goal is to produce more Black professionals that are working as doulas, as lactation professionals, as childbirth educators, serving the Black community to help normalize what we know is best practice. So we're excited about implementing that formula. That sounds like a huge, huge mission <laughs> when you start thinking about the numbers and, um, and the population that's served and, and then the ones that maybe um, aren't served, you know, just because they, they are avoiding whether it be any kind of services because they don't know what questions to ask or, you know, or maybe they want to work with a Black professional, you know, as opposed to someone who doesn't look like them. Yeah. Um, take us back, if you don't mind, to why this truly is so important and why maybe the historical piece um, to serving an African-American or a Black woman serving another Black woman in this type of uh, historical perspective, I guess, when it comes to maternal health. Yeah, 
Um, so for me, I like to hear people's birth stories. It's, it's one of my favorite things to listen to uh, because to me, it's like watching a movie. I love babies and I think babies are incredible. And I want to hear about how your birth went. And I want to hear about, you know, you know, did your water break? Was it dramatic or was it calm and all of that? Um, I also know as a health professional that our birth stories uh, they are powerful and they stay with us for the mom, for the dad. Um, so my, my personal business uh, is called Epiphany Birth Services. And my motto is your birth story and your after story will become your forever story. And that's just to speak to the fact that um, whether your story is an awesome one or an awful one, that memory will stay with you for that reason to me, it's important to be intentional about how we prepare for birth, um, how we feel empowered, how we feel when we're in that, in that birth space, um, that the woman feels protected, that the woman feels calm, that the woman feels safe. We know that how a woman feel has an impact on how she, how she labors and things like that. So those things are really important to me. I work really hard to try to help my doula clients um, establish um, and personalize their birth space, whether they're birthing at home or in the hospital, to feel like they are empowered enough to be well-educated about what's getting ready to happen, to ask good questions, to advocate for themselves, to embrace their, their birth team as just that, their birth team, not the enemy and, and not the dictator, but just the nurses and the doctors that are there to help them reach their goals. Um, so, and I promise I'm, I'm, I'm going to answer your question here. <laughs> no, you're, this is beautiful. All of this is beautiful. So I think, and anyone who's listening to this, I challenge them to, if they have had children, to just take a moment to pause, pause on your birth story. What are some things that you loved? What are some things that you really didn't love? What are some things that you're going to remember until forever? Like a hundred years old with or without dementia will still <laughs> remember things. Right. right. <laughs> uh, think about ask your mother and your grandmother, ask them about their birth stories. We don't just stop thinking about them. They don't just stop um, mattering because we get older. It stays, it really does stay tattooed in your heart. And it also impacts how you influence future generations. If I had a beautiful home birth and I felt empowered and I breastfed successfully, then I'm probably going to pass some of that on to my daughter. I'm probably going to work on, hey, I want you to feel confident and, hey, consider speaking to a midwife. And of course, I'll consider my daughter's specific circumstances and her taste. But in how I raise her, um, her experience and my birth story with her is going to be a part of how I raise her. If I had a traumatic birth experience in the hospital um, or even at home, but trauma would impact the way that I parent. We know that. We know that trauma, it does affect future generations. And so when we're talking about race and we're talking about maternal mortality and we're talking about infant mortality and we're talking about the Black community, uh, when, you, when you hear birth stories that happen not too long ago, then it uh, gives you an appreciation for uh, why we are where we are. So the birth story that I like to share is of, um, is of a woman who was born in Arkansas in 1941. 
1941. Uh, and she was born during a time where segregation was still legal. Uh, this is a black woman. Um, but this pregnant black woman's mother begged a white hospital to please allow her to give birth there. Um, she, this, this grandmother was concerned because of the size of this woman. Uh, she was a short little pregnant mama uh, with a really huge belly. Husband was super tall and big and grandma just had some instincts and was like, listen, I really, really need for her to give birth in this hospital and begged and after asking repeatedly, uh, was granted permission by the supervisor. Um, she, uh, the supervisor did give conditions. Uh, the conditions were that um, this woman, uh, the pregnant mama would have to give birth within the week. They'd have to come in through the back door. Uh, the only individuals allowed to come with this pregnant mom would be her husband and, and her mother. And uh, that there would be no birth certificate um, provided uh, because they certainly didn't want to send the message to the community that uh, Black individuals were allowed to give birth in this hospital. Uh, one of the reasons why she got permission was because the pregnant woman's husband actually worked at the hospital. Oh. Um, she, she got permission. When it was time for this woman, this Black woman to give birth in this hospital, um, she, uh, the baby needed forceps and uh, no medication was used on her. Um, and the forceps um, caused a wound on the baby's temple, an open wound that was not treated. Uh, her postpartum recovery happened in a janitor's closet and uh, the baby uh, sustained a high temperature because she had this wound that wasn't being treated. The grandmother kept going to the nurse's station asking, uh, for something to be done, they ignored her and essentially communicated to her that, listen, you guys aren't even supposed to be here. We're not trying to use our equipment on you. Um, this baby was saved by, essentially saved by a janitor, a black janitor who um, oversaw um, the mom crying over this very sick baby and asked her, did you guys not use the Epsom salt? And they kind of looked up at him like, what are you talking about? And he was like, well, I overheard at the nurse's station. The doctor said to the nurse that they need to rub Epsom salt on the baby's um, temple uh, to help uh, heal the wound. And the grandmother went to the store, got the Epsom salt, and essentially nursed that baby um, back to life. This is a true story. And the woman um, who was the baby, her name is Melba Beals. She is one of the nine Black uh, students that helped to desegregate one of the high schools in Arkansas. 1941, excuse me, was not so long ago. My mother was born in 1946. So the reason I tell this story uh, is not, and if you know me well, then you know that my style is not to just say things to make people feel bad because that's not the point. And that's not uh, what I want it ultimately is something so much bigger and more important than that. Um, I think empathy is a virtue that if we don't have, then things just won't change in the world. Without empathy, there won't be a desire to make things better. Without empathy, all we have is pride and the desire to keep things the way we believe things should be. But I share that story because I imagine that if that had been my mother who gave birth and who sustained a traumatic birth, 
unmedicated because they refused to acknowledge that she was important enough to, to deserve the medication. That if my mother was allowed to have her postpartum period happen in a janitor's closet, uh, what that would communicate to my mom, how that would impact her, and how that would impact how she parented me. That if as a child I broke my arm, that my mom might do anything in her power to keep me from going to the hospital that thought that it would, that thought that it was okay for her uh, to, to have a postpartum recovery period with a sick child in the closet of a hospital, that that's how she was viewed. So this might be the mom who would use old school types of herbs and maybe things that we would consider uh, dangerous. And maybe we would look and be like, well, why are they doing that? No, no, no wonder their infant mortality rates are high. But do you understand why? Do you understand why the trust wasn't there? So I imagine that my mom might raise me either um, directly or indirectly to not trust a population that allowed her to sustain that. And let me tell you, 1941 was not that long ago. That is how trauma, that is one of the ways that trauma helps to impact future generations. Now, my mother is not the only one that you would have to consider to understand why we are where we are. I imagine that with that birth experience, lots of conversations happen in lots of people's homes. I think about the nurses who may have gone home and speaking at the dinner table said things like, can you believe it? Black people are starting to have babies in our hospitals now. What is the world coming to? And can you imagine they had the audacity to ask for pain medicine, like you should just be happy that you're even there. I imagine that conversations like that may very well have happened and that children were sitting at those dinner tables hearing that. And so those children grew up maybe to become doctors or nurses of their own. And they had these biases that were planted either overtly or very subtly um, and, and that contributes to where we are. I imagine that the doctor that delivered her also trained other doctors and maybe directly or indirectly taught those other doctors that, yeah, when the patients look like this, don't worry about giving them pain medication. We know that research was done on Black women um, when it came to um, obstetric um, procedures without right. medication. So... There's a reason that we are where we are. I understand because again, I am a health professional. I understand that when we talk about um, racism playing a part in infant and maternal mortality, it can be a very big blow to individuals who feel like, hey, listen, I'm a nurse and, and I love what I do and I'm committed and I treat all of my patients the same. And I, I, I see how one might feel offended because of that. My challenge to those individuals is to pause and, and to even hearing a podcast like this, I want you to think about what, what your desired outcome is. I want you to think about, am I seeking to understand, first of all, do I accept that the statistics are what they are, that infants in the Black community, that moms in the Black community are, are dying at higher rates. And am I, am I interested in knowing why? Um, would, I, would it need to be my race before I cared? Am I interested in knowing why? And then when we're talking about racism, to understand that we're not saying 
that health professionals are walking into the room and saying, you're black, I'm going to treat you like this. You're white, I'm going to treat you like that. It's not that overt. In fact, if it was that overt, it would probably be easier to recognize. I and think you're right. <laughs> I think you're so, right. <laughs> just know it's not that overt. Um, it's the biases. And we absolutely all have biases. And, it, and I have biases. Um, it's just that the biases that we're talking about, they can cost lives. I have, I have, uh, I have co-treated with other therapists before in the hospital where we've reviewed charts before going into a patient's room. And I've heard colleagues say things like, oh, um, liver disease, probably an alcoholic. And I've looked up at them in shock, like, is that what we're doing now? Like, this happens, this happens. And it's made me wonder, well, what, do you, what do you do when you see uh, that this person is Black? What assumptions do you make? Because again, we have them, we have biases. So for those individuals who feel like I don't accept it because I feel like you're, you're calling me racist. Um, my hope is that you, you hang around for long enough to hear the whole story and to understand um, treating everybody the same sometimes isn't appropriate. Sometimes you have to recognize the history. You have to acknowledge the history and uh, some of the fears. You have to acknowledge the fact that research shows that from a health perspective, um, the baseline stress level of a Black woman is higher than that of a white woman. Um, and how does that contribute to her pregnancy? How does that contribute to her postpartum stage? How does that contribute to her birth? You have to be interested and you have to, you have to hang around for long enough to ask the right questions. But if you stop at being offended and at being defensive, um, then, then it won't work. This is like a relationship without communication. It won't work for the individuals who shut down and who say, no, I can't. I, I don't want to hear it because basically what I'm hearing is that you're saying I'm racist. I'm not having it. Um, then it won't work. Then it won't work. Like we, we have to be willing to hear. And, and, and I, and I re repeat again, my, my goal is never uh, to insult. It's never to accuse, but it is to speak truth. And it is to speak truth about history and how history affects where we are right now. Um, and these aren't fun uh, historical facts to review, but they're true. So when a woman, uh, when a Black woman uh, is the patient and her doctor or her nurse is a Black woman, there can a lot of times be this, this instant connection. And not to say that they're going to be best buddies all the time because they're still two different individuals, um, but there is a familiarity that can a lot of times feel very reassuring. Um, and and uh, research continues to show us that black babies that have black that doctors are dying at less rates. Um, what does that mean? Does it mean that the white doctors are killing them? That's not what it means. You have to hang around for long enough to pay attention. Biasism, racism has done some very complicated and intricate things. And has it, it's allowed it's it seeped its ways into uh, so many different areas of our lives. It's 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 affected education. It's affected healthcare. It's affected kids on the playground. Um, again, the overt racism is a lot easier to 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 identify and to address, and the subtle racism 
that part, that part, you know, for a black individual, a lot of times you're talking about something that other people don't want to acknowledge. Like, well, what do you mean? Things are better. We have a black vice president now. So like, what, what more do you want? And we don't necessarily want to acknowledge um, how the past has affected where we are now. Uh, and that's, you know. I think that's a great, uh, great lead into kind of my next thought is how as a maybe white provider that is serving a black woman, should that, should that acknowledgement be had? I mean, would you recommend that as, as someone who is, uh, you know, African-American and, and then having a white person walk into the room? You know, I know that I was at a conference a few years ago and it was a, it was a physician who was a, a black doctor and she spoke about infant mortality and, um, and maternal mortality. And one of the things she talked about is, you know, we all have pride, you know, no matter what color of skin, what color skin you have, we all have pride and nobody wants to be a charity case. And I just, or this just has really stuck out to me because, you know, as I walk into a room, I guess I've never really thought about feeling like, I'm there to offer charity, you know, or, or, you know, in my role as, as a, the, the things that I do in my role, I, it's never been something about offering charity, but I know that kind of looking at that historical perspective that when I walk into a room and maybe I offer a gift card or I offer a service or I offer something like that, it's like, okay, wow, now you don't think I can even, you know, you know, pay my gas, you know, and, or something like that. And so yeah. I would love your perspective on something like that. Yeah. Um, gosh, uh, and I hear what you're saying. Well, and, and, and sorry, and let's, let's take it back to as, as well as for the village, you know, because I know that you are not wanting that service to be a charity case for an African American population or for the black woman. So, so definitely let's, let's put this all together for us. Yeah, and I think, and that's true. So for the village, you know, the families that we're looking to serve, they will not be paying for the services that they're receiving. And um, but like you said, uh, and I know we've talked about this before, I don't want for it to feel like a government check. I don't want it to feel like it's a charity case. I want, I want for these moms and for, for their family members to feel like you matter, that this matters. If you've worked as a doula, for example, and you've had the honor of working with couples and having even the couple's parents and grandparents present during your prenatal visits, a lot of times you are, you know, I'm talking to a mom and her mother's present and her mother is like, man, I wish I had had this 30 yeah. years ago. Like, I wish somebody had told me that I could do this. And they just told me that, you know, I just had to go to the hospital and I have to say yes to this and all of that. So the influence that we are going to have or the birth workers are going to have on these families will speak for themselves. But I, I don't want it to be presented as a, we feel sorry for you. Uh, and, and that will be, you know, as we have orientation with our incredible first round of birth workers here in a few, week, few weeks, and um, that will be something that will be emphasized with how we want to deliver what we're trying to deliver. Now, for those individuals that, like you, you were describing, are, are maybe some kind of struggling and kind of like, you know, I want to give, but I don't want to be condescending. I don't want to just presume that, you know, giving a gift card is going to do this and that. And I don't have a great answer for that because sometimes the actions that 
you're undertaking are based on facts that you know. You might say, hey, I know that this particular community that they don't have access to care. So because of that, we are donating gift cards and things like that. So my, my response to this, however, is as long as your intention is pure, that is what's going to be most important. The actions by themselves, they may be perceived and, and uh, as resentful by some of the recipients. That may be it. But remember that there's a lot of mistrust that has happened and it's not gonna be easy to gain everybody's trust. You're not gonna be able to change everybody. Some people have experienced more mistrust than others. Some people have lost things. Some people have experienced some pretty traumatic things. The, the woman who had a baby and did her postpartum in a, in a janitor's closet not, might not be as easy to gain her trust. But the intent needs to be there. The desire, like whoever, if you know, if, if you're an individual who is genuinely seeking to change things and not just looking to, well, in the, in in our in our training, it says that we're supposed to uh, we're supposed to just be respectful. So there, I was respectful. But I'm saying, if you are affected by this if you're kind of a little messed up by these statistics, if you're kind of a little bit disturbed that a group of humans have had this as part of their history where they've experienced oppression to the point where um, these individuals are starting to believe this about themselves, if you care about that, then you just have to be genuine with what you're doing and what you have to be humble. You have to, you have to be willing to do the research to have conversations with people that look like you too, to see what they're doing, to, to check in with each other, to not put it all on the black individuals um, in terms of like, okay, how do I make this better? Because some black individuals, they're just not there or they're exhausted. Or when things are happening, when we're talking about police brutality and things happening um, on the news where racism has a very obvious um, piece to it, there's a physiological response that a lot of us actually have where we can't talk about it for days or weeks or can't watch the videos because it's just kind of reliving. It's reliving something. And I will say that, um, especially with For the Village, you know, I believe in what we're doing. I'm excited about what we're doing. Uh, and every once in a while, I will speak to somebody who challenges uh, the worth of it. And it, it blows me away, who essentially communicates, well, if Black individuals are experiencing this, surely they've brought it on themselves. Like, what makes them more important than anybody else? And uh, thankfully, that's not the, the, the normal response that I get, but I've certainly gotten that. And to me, it's almost like a woman who has gotten raped and who has sought help and assistance, and she's been re-victimized just yeah. because people have asked her those questions. Well, what did you wear? And did you say no? And after a while, she stops talking. She can't live like that. So for individuals who are seeking for, for support and seeking to heal, um, just know that as you're trying to be deliberate about showing respect and showing care, uh, that people are in different stages of healing just people are, are receiving it differently. So I, I, I don't feel like there is a perfect answer for that, but I do feel like there needs to be a genuine desire 
to do whatever it is that you know you choose to do and to have important conversations and the population that you you absolutely want to include in your conversations are your children and your grandchildren talk to them ask them ask them ask them about racism ask them about their friends and Ask them so that you can get an idea if you're feeling like, hey, I'm not racist, I'm not this, I believe we're all the same, I treat everybody the same. Ask your children what you've communicated to them. And they might be like, yeah, you know, you, you know, I agree. Or they may be like, well, you know, you do tend to say things like maybe they brought it on themselves or, you know, we, we things like that. Just look at your actions, have conversations. Uh, don't be ambiguous about it. Um, when we talk about history uh, and, and Black history uh, not being taught. So I'm not from Oklahoma, um, but learning about the Tulsa riots and learning yeah. about the fact that it was not uh, taught in schools, it makes me think, imagine that. Like, imagine that your, your people went through something and whether that something was horrific or incredible, it was omitted from the books. Um, what is your response to that? You know, like I, I challenge individuals and people don't like to talk about things that make them uncomfortable, but in a relationship that doesn't work, you still have to talk. Unless if you wanna repair that relationship, you still have to talk. Right. And so we have to find a way. So for those who, who kind of stop because it gets a little bit too, too sensitive, we kind of have to do that. And um, what, but, things, but, what things will be omitted in the future, you know, for, for things to either change or not change, I think is right. very, yeah, so, wow. So this is, this is sensitive stuff, it is, but at the end of the day, my desire is for change to happen. My desire is for growth to happen, uh, and, and my desire is, with this nonprofit, is uh, to, to, to have an outcome that's gonna be a really incredible outcome. These birth workers that, uh, that basically every year there'll be an application process and they'll apply, send in references, uh, they'll be interviewed and we'll select five women and they'll get training and they'll be part of our, our organization in that capacity as a birth worker for a period of three years. Um, and we will pour into them again we don't want them being those token people that are like, hey, we need, we need black birth workers. Can you be a black birth worker? Okay, we're done with you. No, we want them with us for three years. We want to pour into them. We want to compensate them so that they can continue, um, you know, using this because this, this, the, the certifications that we're um, providing for them will help them to have their own businesses. And then we kind of want them to, at the end of three years, go on and continue what they're doing, hopefully continue to serve us, um, maybe on a committee or on our board, uh, but then we wanna leave room to, to welcome a new uh, group of five women. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, as a black birth worker, I don't, I don't have a ton of black doula colleagues here in Oklahoma. So for these birth workers, I'm excited for them, that they'll have each other to ask for advice and to ask for resources and things like that. So. Um, the, the reason we're doing it this way is not to be exclusive. Uh, it's not to keep anybody out, but it's to be intentional. It's to be intentional. And again, using a formula that I believe very strongly will work, 
uh, to increase that level of trust uh, between providers and, uh, and these families. Uh, and I'm very excited about that. Uh, you should be, and you should be very proud. And I, I know I am proud of you and oh. everything that you have accomplished. And so I am excited to support you in your endeavors and all of the, anybody that, that you get to serve in the future and those that we bring aboard to help encourage the, the professional piece to the service. So I'm just proud of you in so many ways. Thank you. Um, so I, you know, I, something I like to do with the podcast is the podcast is called, we saved you a seat. And, um, and so many times I ask, I ask my guest, you know, who are you saving a seat for? But today, Farah, I have to say, you saved a seat for me. You know, you saved a seat for me to sit here and listen to you and listen to your heart and your words and, um, and everything that you shared today is, needs to be heard by everyone in Oklahoma, but not even in just Oklahoma, but around the world, because there is such a need. Our infant mortality and uh, maternal mortality rates are just not where they need to be. And anything that we can do to help fix the problem, everyone needs to be jumping on board, um, not to just say this or that or why, but we've got to jump on board and figure out everything together. So I'm just so proud of you and all that you've accomplished. And um, but if I was to say, who are you saving a seat for? Who would you say? So um, right now, I would be saving the seat for, gosh, there are two people. If I can save two seats, that would be very helpful, just because that's what's in my heart. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I am saving a seat for um, the, the, the individual that does not look like me. Uh, from older generation that doesn't understand why why for the village even exists, um, I want him to have a seat and I want him to listen and I want him to have a cup of coffee, and uh, and I'm also saving a seat for another older generation uh, individual who um, who helped to, to to pave the way for for us and who uh, experienced things that. Um, that again, that again was passed on to future generations, whether it was directly or indirectly, that uh, maybe had to sit or stand at the back of the bus and attended uh, the, the the protests. I want them to be there too. Um, I want to. I want them to see where we are and and how we're working to to get even better. Um, but those are the seats that I'm I'm saving right now. I'm, I'm recognizing that. Both of those seats are important because we can't do this alone. We can't do it alone. Yeah. Past generations, future generations, and our current generation. We have to all be willing to make a difference. Yeah. Farrah, so, thank you so much for being our guest today. I am excited to see what For the Village is going to do in the future and how it's going to impact our, our livelihood here in Oklahoma. And then I have a feeling that it's going to be even something to grow bigger and beyond just the border of Oklahoma. So I just, again, can't thank you enough for being part of this. And I definitely look forward to hearing more from you in the future. Uh, thanks for having me, Tamara. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Saved You a Seat. Oklahoma Family Network promotes family-centered care and provides tools so families can make informed decisions advocate for improved services, 
build connections among families, and serve as a trusted resource in health care of children and young adults. If you would like to become a supporting family or get in touch with another family, please contact Oklahoma Family Network at oklahomafamilynetwork.org or by calling 405-271-5072.